Hello and welcome to Story Talk. This is episode number nine. My name is Laura Randall. I will be your host. And today we're talking about a great film. And since it's episode number nine, it's very appropriate that there are a lot of nines involved in this episode. There are nine uh, Nazgul. There are nine in the fellowship there it was it's been 18 years since it was released in 2001 and you guessed it we're talking about lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring by wingnut films and new line cinema formally but really we all know this film is by peter jackson and by J.R.R. tolkien who wrote the original text of the book if you are already a fan of the books or the movie or the books and the movies, then you are all ready to jump into this episode today. So congratulations. If you have not read the book or seen the movie, then I strongly urge you to uh, listen to this episode or watch or read one of them first. It doesn't particularly matter, but you should know that there are a lot of spoilers in uh, this episode. In all of these episodes we use a lot of spoilers so if if you're sensitive to that kind of thing then go ahead and go and read the book or see the movie before you listen to the episode but otherwise you should be ready to jump right in with us if you have read the book but not seen the movie then um, go ahead and listen to this episode and then watch the movie because I think it will enhance your viewership of the movie but again you know it's up to you you should just know that there are a lot of spoilers we talk about we're going to be talking about the book and the movie how they compare to each other how they've influenced each other um i think it's valuable to read and watch this story it's so rich and the more you you sink your your fingers into the the soil of this story the more fertile it becomes with giving you ideas or insights about your own life or insights about the characters and the psychological dynamics like there are so many different ways you could go with lord of the rings and it's pretty much only limited by your willingness to engage with the text this is one of um, our family's favorite films and my husband and I watch this every year around this time of year because that's when the movies came out and we grew up with them being released one after another for three consecutive years and so we we kind of got in the habit of thinking about Lord of the Rings during November and December and besides that there's a lot of fall imagery in in Lord of the Rings so at the end of the fall is the perfect time to start exploring with Frodo again. And the obvious challenge with this story is going to be making it fresh for such a broad spectrum of viewers. There are those of you out there who are lifelong fans of Lord of the Rings, much like my husband or I. There are those of you who are even like lifelong fans plus who, you know, have read all of the extra material and, and keep up on the wikis. Maybe you're writing the wikis for Lord of the Rings and that um, is even a step beyond being a fan. And then it's become increasingly apparent that there is a growing demographic, the, the rising generation that it has not been exposed to Lord of the Rings. You know, they didn't grow up with it as a book and they also didn't grow up with it being released in the movies. And so there are um, a significant number of of younger members of our communities who have not been exposed to Lord of the Rings and I hope that they will find value in this episode too or that you will find value in this episode too if you're the one listening. Hopefully uh, the 
things that I will talk about today with Lord of the Rings will make it accessible to anyone who hasn't seen or read or known the story beforehand, but also enhance your viewing if you do know the movies by heart and have been writing the wikis um, for, for years. Because one of the primary purposes of this podcast is to provide a, a kind of digestive story enzyme for you while you are consuming media. There's a lot of great, rich storytelling to be had out there. Uh, but even if you are eating a diet rich in the right foods, if you aren't able to digest those foods, then the foods aren't going to be doing you much good. And so you could be watching good stories and even an incredibly uh, rich, complex story like Lord of the Rings, but not getting the full um, mental nutritional benefit out of that kind of story because it hasn't been all the way broken down. So our goal today, you and I, our goal is to find something that will assist you in digesting this story more completely the next time you consume it, whether it's in a book or a movie form, or maybe even in the podcast form. Maybe uh, as you hear the summary, you will be able to find one of those those nuggets that you hadn't broken into yet. And I hope that will be fun for you. I hope it'll be exciting. And then I hope that you will share it on the Story Talk group. Um, I'll mention it again at the end, but please come and join us on Facebook and contribute to the Story Talk group. Like the page, uh, subscribe to the podcast, and I never used to understand why podcast people would say that, you know, why does it really matter if people subscribe to their podcast as long as people are listening? The reason that uh, we ask you to subscribe or to leave reviews or things on podcasts is because it helps other people to find that podcast. Uh, it's not just a vanity trip, although it's always nice to hear that people have found value in what you're doing. The algorithms behind searching for podcasts only make the podcast more available to other other listeners if if people are interacting with the podcast. So that's why we ask you to like and subscribe and leave reviews and stuff. That all helps more people to uh, be exposed to it. And the bigger our community of people uh, talking about stories, the richer and more interesting our conversations about stories will become because everyone brings a slightly different a set of insights to the story that they're coming to. And, and my personal goal, my personal hope for you is that through listening to these episodes, you will be equipped with the vocabulary that you need to talk about stories and frame the insights that you have had about them so that you can talk about what was happening in the story and analyze why with confidence because I know you've been having those insights but most people are not uh, empowered without some training as to how to talk about stories. As you know, I like to compare story analysis or stories to consuming food or, or digesting food. Um, and in this analogy, story analysis is much like cheese tasting or chocolate tasting or any other kind of tasting because the palate of the mouth has to be developed to amplify the sensitivities that are already there. And the person training to do this kind of tasting has to establish 
a vocabulary with which to describe those different tastes or smells or flavors. Story analysis is much the same way, where we've all been consuming stories for a long time, just like most people who develop into tasters have been eating food for a long time. But they have the specialty training and the amplified sensitivity to the differences between the things that they are tasting so that they can describe what is being experienced in a comprehensible and meaningful way. And this is what my hope is for you with stories, that you will become story tasters, that every time you consume a story, that every time you taste a story, you'll be like Anton Ego in Ratatouille and say, I don't like stories. I love stories. And if I don't love it, I won't listen or I won't watch or whatever. I want you to, to have that kind of refinement in your taste for stories. And I think that Lord of the Rings is a great training ground to develop that sense of taste because it excels in so many areas. It excels in world building, in character development, in plot, in resolution, in oh, there are just so many areas that it excels. And we will go into many of those areas today. We will only be examining uh, the Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. However, it is the second book uh, written about Middle-earth. And for those of you who need a little Tolkien primer, J.R.R. Tolkien lived in the first half of the 20th century. He released the book called The Hobbit in 1937, and then The Lord of the Rings came after that in about 1954. However, he did not write like most fantasy authors do today, even though he was basically the foundation of our modern fantasy movement. He didn't write like most of the fantasy authors do today, where they're just scrambling to put down so many words, so many words, so many words, and get in all of these fantastical places and, and swords and weapons and stuff. He, he was really focused on the languages and the history and the the cadence and the the feeling behind the stories more even than the writing itself which is why when we're analyzing Tolkien's stories it can vary between being uh, exhilarating and and thrilling to overwhelming and tedious in the same sitting. He just put a lot of time and effort and, and poured so much of his life and his wisdom and his experience into these stories, the, the making of the stories themselves, and then the huge amount of background material that he wrote for, for each of the stories and this whole world that he had created of Middle-earth. He put so much into that that the, it can be a little overwhelming for a newcomer. So I'm making a special effort to try and explain some of those terms. At the end of uh, going through our summary of the movie, we will also look at some of the differences between the book and the movie and hopefully between just using the words enough and slowing down to explain some of the more complex ideas before they are used too often. You won't have like the culture shock of coming into this fantasy world and being overwhelmed with all of the new names and places and obscure histories that aren't even, you know, actively part of the Lord of the Rings story. 
So with all that said, there's a lot of fun stuff today. Hold on, keep your keep your ears open for all of the uh, uh, fantastical names that will be used here, and and we'll dive right in. This is Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring by Peter Jackson and J.R.R. Tolkien and distributed by New Line Cinema and Wingnut Films. The first thing that we notice about this film is that there is an unreliable narrator, by which I mean that the point of view that we are coming through, because an audience always has to come to a story through someone's eyes. And usually that is the person that the camera focuses the most on. We're watching their reactions the most. Uh, so for a lot of this movie, it's Frodo. But at the beginning of this movie, it is established right away that Frodo might not be the most reliable narrator. And we get that sense because the narrator switches maybe four times, three or four times in the first 15 minutes of the film. We start out with a black screen and then we hear a voiceover, a woman's voice, and we don't know who owns the voice. We just know that she has a lot of authority. She has a British accent. It's very, it's a very lovely voice and it's talking about the the history of the rings and she's telling us that there were three given to the elves and seven to the dwarves and nine to the men but then one was forged in secret and it was the ring of power and it was going to control them all and we don't know who this character is until almost two-thirds of the way through the m movie her name is galadriel and she doesn't even play a very prominent role in the story proper but she does play a prominent role in the narration she comes in several times throughout the movie to narrate certain parts of the story and so we we have this switch that happens even before we've met our supposed main character and you'll notice that it's it's rather difficult to use a lot of the attributions for characters that are are usually used in stories usually you have like your main character or your protagonist those are the two typical names for the person that you're following through the story and then there, there's your villain or your antagonist and then your there are side characters or side villains or guides or comic relief characters or other things and at one time or another most of the characters can fit comfortably into one of those roles however the beauty and also one of the daunting things about lord of the rings is that it's layered and interwoven in such a complex way that you can't just slice right through the story and say Frodo is the main character. You can't just slice right through it and say Aragorn is the main character or even that Sauron is the, is the villain all of the time. Because there are different characters that come in and out of those positions. And even though Sauron and Frodo tend to occupy the two polarities of our story, the the protagonist and the antagonist positions, so to speak. Even though they occupy those positions for most of the movie, they don't occupy it for the whole thing and they tend to um, move around and give way to other characters depending on the moment at which you're accessing the story. So it's uh, it can tend to be problematic to try and use those 
terms, which is why I find it helpful to break the story down into three segments. And in this first segment, uh, we're talking about the narrator here at the beginning. We have Galadriel, who introduces us. And then uh, immediately after Galadriel, we move to a hobbit. We go to Bilbo. Bilbo is Frodo's uncle, kind of. He's actually a distant relation who has adopted Frodo, but in the context of the story, all we need to know is that they're related and he's kind of like an uncle. And Bilbo and Frodo live in the same hobbit hole or house uh, together. And Bilbo is introducing, also by narration, the concept of hobbits. So you can tell in both of these introductory sequences through Galadriel and then through Bilbo, we have a view of this world that's trying to catch everybody up, put everybody on the same page. For the fans who have been reading Lord of the Rings for a long time, it's setting the stage so that they know what parts of the story they can expect to see. And for the newcomers to Lord of the Rings, it's uh, priming their ability to to recognize the main thrust of this adventure because it's going to be an action movie. It's also going to be a magical movie. It's going to be a melodrama. A in other words, a stark confrontation between good and evil, and it's going to involve a lot of different characters. We can tell that even from the the barest introduction. So by the time we're we're getting to Bilbo, we're starting to zoom in on where we are really going to start this story. All of all of Galadriel's introduction and all of Bilbo's introduction are to get us all on the same page as to where we are. After Bilbo introduces the concept of hobbits, then we switch perspectives again to go to Frodo. And Frodo will come back in a second, but we're really only with him for a moment while he gets us into Gandalf's cart. Gandalf is a wizard, a, a very important character throughout The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, although he isn't the main character. Uh, he, he becomes our next point of view access point to Lord of the Rings, and then we start seeing the story through his eyes. Once Frodo gets up from reading his book and comes to greet Gandalf, who has just come back to the Shire, where the hobbits live, then we switch to looking at this story through Gandalf's eyes. And as Frodo is explaining things, it's Gandalf's reactions that we are watching. It's his thought processes, his gears turning in his head that we are witnessing. We're not witnessing Frodo as much as we are Gandalf. And when Frodo finishes catching Gandalf up on the news, we see Frodo get out and, and Frodo leaves, which means that we're not with his point of view anymore. We stay with Gandalf and we we stay with him all the way up to Bilbo's house and then we go with Gandalf into Bilbo's house and we're with Gandalf as he is seeing Bilbo's house again for the first time, observing the fact that Bilbo has all of these maps out on his desk. He's watching signs from uh, that Bilbo is exhibiting, such as sticking his finger in his pocket and fiddling with something. We're, we're watching Gandalf's reactions to all of these things. So here in the first 15 minutes of the film, we have gone from Galadriel, a character that we have never met and don't know to identify yet, then to Bilbo, 
a character we also haven't met but can feel fairly familiar with because we can see his surroundings and his home so we can start to empathize with him right away. Then we go to Frodo who's in this idyllic uh, green natural setting and then we go to Gandalf who is another very foreign type of character to our way of life which means that he looks very different from the way we uh, dress and look you know he has a big long beard and a big hat and robes and he's driving a cart and none of those are access points for us with Gandalf but we can we are now accessing him through the point of view and Bilbo and Frodo who are very accessible to us as as audience members uh, bridge that gap for us so that we have these two strange narrators Galadriel and Gandalf they're very mysterious to us and but then we have Bilbo and Frodo who are different but more accessible more understandable more um, easy to empathize with as a modern audience and between all of these narrators besides being a really effective way on giving us tons of information in these first couple of minutes, it's also an effective way to communicate that this story can be taken multiple ways. In other words, thought has gone into how each character is going to participate dynamically with the situation that we are going to see unfolding. They are not just plopped into this storyline as a as a mouthpiece for an author. Uh, sometimes in books you'll get a character who just says things or does things that don't really make sense for that character and you can tell that the author just wanted them to say that or, or needed them to do that in order to move the plot forward and this story is not like that. These characters have been very well formed from all sides. They each have a different perspective. There's a slightly different taste to each of them as we switch perspectives from them. They don't respond in the same way to questions. They don't use the same patterns of speech. You can tell that each of these characters has been considered individually and that they are all participating towards one end. But at this point in the movie, we don't really know what that end is. Unless we've read the book, then we, we know, but we, we are willing to not know as long as we're watching the movie. Uh, but we soon recognize that this ring is showing up over and over and over again and from the reactions that people are having to the ring we develop this idea of of what the ring is of if it's good or bad and the music assists with that and other things assist with that lighting and stuff but by the time we get to the end of Bilbo's birthday party we are pretty sure that this ring is sketchy. We've seen Bilbo searching for it frantically as if he's just lost uh, his his phone is actually what it reminds me of now. But this was done before phone, so it's, it's more of an addictive-like searching. He's searching for it, but he's not really happy when he gets it so much as he is relieved that he hasn't lost it. There's a there's a little bit of a difference there. So we're getting that from watching Bilbo and we're seeing him use it as kind of a coping mechanism. And he is telling Gandalf early on in the movie that he feels old. He feels old inside like butter stretched over too much bread. 
And uh, Gandalf is noticing suspiciously all of the ways that Bilbo is interacting with this ring. So by the time we get to the end of Bilbo's birthday party, we pretty much know that this ring is bad news. And when Bilbo gets back to his house to his hobbit hole and Gandalf follows him there he has a hard time following through with his intention to leave the ring behind and here's where we get our first real confrontation with the ring is with Bilbo the first taste of what it means to be a ring bearer and how difficult that is because we have seen how sweet and loving and grandfatherly and neighborly and quirky Bilbo is as a character but when Gandalf asks him to give up the ring to leave the ring to Frodo to put it on the mantelpiece he shifts into a version of his character that we have not seen before. It's stubborn and bitter. It's resentful. He's suspicious and even aggressive towards Gandalf, whom, who is his old dear friend. And Gandalf has to snap him out of it by summoning some of his magical power and, and raising himself up over this tiny little hobbit to remind Bilbo that he is not trying to steal his things. He's trying to help him let go of something that he can see is causing a problem for Bilbo. And when Bilbo has snapped out of it, then he's back to his, his happy, quirky self. And he has one more challenge, which is that uh, Gandalf says, trust me as you once did, leave the ring to Frodo and Bilbo acquiesces and says, you're right, Gandalf, it should go to Frodo and, and I'm going to go to Rivendell and, and then he tries to leave and Gandalf says, Bilbo, the ring is still in your pocket. And then Bilbo has this last confrontation with the ring of having to let it go and turning his hand millimeter by millimeter, you know, fighting for every fraction of an inch before it finally falls from his hand to the floor. And this whole sequence does a really good job of illustrating how difficult it is to let go of the ring. What a complicated relationship the ring bearer has with the ring. That they can think one thing and yet feel another thing and feel uh, things about the things that they're feeling and that it it's confusing and uh, exhausting for someone to do that. Gandalf, of course, picks up on how difficult this is and grows more suspicious of this ring and what it could be for. And when he comes back into Bilbo's house, he seems to think about picking it up and then uh, at the last second before grabbing it has this flash of, of vision. And we don't know what it is at this point. It's just a bright, scary sound accompanied by an image. Uh, but Gandalf takes the sign immediately to uh, mean that he should not pick up the ring. And so he's waiting for Frodo when Frodo gets back from Bilbo's party and Frodo picks up the ring, recognizes it as Bilbo and deduces that Bilbo has left. And Gandalf, who has been thinking about the ring this whole time and waiting for Frodo, puts it in an envelope so that it's not in direct contact with Frodo or himself and then leaves right away. And as we see in the following montage, he's trying to find out what this ring is. This whole transfer of the ring serves as our inciting incident 
for this story. In reality, The Hobbit, uh, the book, is really the inciting incident for this story. Bilbo finding the ring from Gollum is what starts off this whole adventure for Frodo also. But this introductory sequence of learning the history of the ring, seeing Bilbo let the ring go, seeing Frodo pick it up is really our inciting incident for this story. And it marks the real beginning of the story of the Lord of the Rings. The rest of the movie is split into these three main adventures. And these adventures highlight one of the great things about analyzing Lord of the Rings, which is that it's an episodic plot pattern. To be an episodic plot means that the adventures have pretty distinct beginning and ending points. It's like having a miniature story or a bunch of miniature stories that are built up into one larger story. And the movie The Fellowship of the Ring can can benefit from that kind of breakdown because the the Fellowship of the Ring is basically split into three main adventures. But the overall story of Lord of the Ring can also be split up into segmented adventures like that. The first movie is a set of three adventures, but it also is one of three movies, which are all basically just collections of the adventures that escalate and build on each other until the final climax. And the nice thing about this episodic pattern for our purposes is that it gives us some resting places in the middle of the, if, of the overall story to stop and regroup to rest before we start the next adventure. And each episode also follows story structure. So for each of the episodes, they all build on each other, but each one individually can be examined as its own story. Thus, in this first episode, uh, we have Frodo receiving the ring, and then we see a bunch of disturbing images of uh, a big tower that's all black. It has all of the language of the enemy uh, for this movie. There's a lot of black spiky things, you know, surreal lights. There's a lot of clanking gears and chains turning and uh, the sound of, you know, pounding industrial type sounds. And then there are shrieking uh, sounds of pain heard above all of these other sounds that say Shire Baggins. And then right after that, we see these um, riders in black coming out of this tower. And we can see that they're bad guys, not just because the music is telling us so, but because they've still got all of this this visual language backing up the bad guys. They're black horses. They're all garbed in black. They're all kind of spiky and hidden and aggressive. Meanwhile, uh, Gandalf, we're getting these intercut scenes of Gandalf as he goes into a library and the library is all lit with this golden glow. It has a lot of wood textures, a lot of paper textures. And we see Gandalf reading about the ring. And as he's reading about the ring, we're getting another primer on the history of the ring. We realize that this is the Isildur who was spoken of in the introduction. The Isildur who cut the ring from Sauron's hand and then kept the ring instead of destroying it. And in the documents that 
Gandalf is reading, Isildur is talking about how precious the ring is. And precious is one of the key words that uh, signifies someone is falling under the spell of the ring. Precious was the name that Gollum gave for it in The Hobbit, and it's also the name that Bilbo gives to it as uh, he's growing more antagonistic towards Gandalf. And when Gandalf reads it in this account of Isildur, it really pricks his ears up and he realizes that this is probably the one ring of power that was cut from Sauron's hand. And he finds a trick that you can cast the ring into the fire and that it will show the markings on the band and that will tell you if this really is the one ring. So Gandalf then races back to the Shire and we catch up to Frodo and Sam as they're coming out of a pub and then going home and Frodo finds Gandalf unexpectedly at his house and in and Gandalf rather in a panic tells Frodo to uh, get the ring out make sure it's secret and safe and then they throw it on the fire and he gives it to Frodo and says do you see anything on the band and at first Frodo says no but as he waits and watches these spidery lines of text appear all along the outside of the band and and you can see from Gandalf's expression that this is not good news uh, it confirms his suspicion but also confirms the fact that they are in very real danger. And he tells Frodo what it means. It means that there's one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. And he says, this is the, the ring that was cut from Sauron's hand, and we have to do something about that because Sauron can never find this ring or he will have all the power that he needs to overtake Middle-earth. Now, if you're a newcomer to Lord of the Rings, there are probably a lot of questions popping up now, like why does Sauron want to take over Middle-earth? How is he going to do that with a ring? How does a ring preserve his life essence? All of these questions. Um, if you're a more experienced, seasoned fantasy reader, then these questions probably won't bother you because this is <laughs> typical for a lot of fantasy. But if they do bother you, then know that you can read more about the, you know, the histories of all of these things from Tolkien, but a lot of it still resides in uh, just the enjoyment of myth. And that, you know, you don't need to know how the rings are magical. They just are. That That's how the elves make these magical rings, and that's how it is, and that's part of the story. So that's um, one of the foundation assumptions of the story. There's no debate that the ring is powerful and there's no debate that Sauron getting this ring will end the world. The only question at this point for Saur or for uh, Gandalf and for Frodo is what to do about this ring. Frodo panics when he, uh, not when he hears that it's the one ring, he handles that fairly well, but when Gandalf says that Gollum has basically given Sauron his name and address, he panics and says, Gandalf, you have to take this ring. You have to take it away from here. And we see in Frodo here the uh, very normal resistance that any good character, <laughs> any well-written character has towards having their life overturned on them 
with the inciting incident because Frodo's life has been overturned, but he's not willing to quite accept that yet. And when Gandalf says, no, I can't take this ring. You cannot give me this ring. Frodo says, but I don't want it. I don't know what to do with it. You have to take it. You're the powerful one. You're the guide. You're the one in charge. You're the one who knows what to do. You take the ring and do something about it. I'm just a hobbit is his thinking. And Gandalf says, I can't take this ring, Frodo. I would take it out of a desire to do good, but through me, it would wield a power more great and terrible than any imaginable. And Frodo realizes in this moment that he is the only one who can take responsibility for this ring. And to his great credit, he does. He doesn't throw it out the window. He doesn't try to run away. He doesn't try to shove it back on Bilbo or give it away to somebody else or make it someone else's problem. He doesn't insist that Gandalf take it and say like, oh, I don't care what happens to anybody else, you know, as long as you don't make me get involved. He accepts the responsibility of the ring in this moment. And, and that is a pivotal decision that he will make a couple more times throughout the the course of this film where he decides to accept stewardship over something that is is uh, bigger and more difficult than any other task he's done in his life we then hear Gandalf giving him instructions and they're packing they're making him all ready with the provisions and the food and the clothes and the things that he will need in order to get out of Hobbiton and Gandalf sends, uh, is about to send Frodo off when they hear a sound outside the window. And since we've been seeing clips of the Nazgul getting closer and closer to the Shire, uh, we are suspicious every time there's something unknown that it could be a Nazgul. And Gandalf is obviously also suspicious because he tells Frodo immediately to get down and then he approaches the window. He uh, jabs something that's outside of the window and then pulls Sam Gamgee, Frodo's uh, best friend, in, into the room. And he says, you know, Sam, have you been eavesdropping? And Sam makes some excuse. And Gandalf ultimately sends Sam with Frodo as a uh, part parental influence, part servant, part uh, brother and friend. Uh, he plays a lot of different roles for Frodo. But at least in this beginning portion, he's very definitely more of a servant to Bilbo, a friendly uh, servant, than he is a best friend or brother like he is near the end of the movie or near the end of the, the whole story. Gandalf sends them off and he parts ways with them in a wood and he tells them to meet him at the Prancing Pony in a place called Bree. We don't know what any of these things are, of course, but we are, it's apparent that Frodo knows what all of these things are. And so he and Sam start journeying on their way. They pick up Merry and Pippin and they start to have their first encounters with the Nazgul. The Nazgul are servants of Sauron and they are pretty terrifying. They come around on these horses. The horses have like blood dripping off of their feet. They're clad in this this very thick armor from head to foot. 
they, you can't see their faces. They're all garbed in black and they sniff around because they can't actually see. If you haven't read the book, you might not pick up on that detail, but they don't actually see with their eyes. They sense things through the power of Sauron and they can smell things and their horses can see, but they themselves can't see. So that's why uh, when Mary, Pippin, Sam, and Frodo are all hiding from the Nazgul, they're, they're right there in front of the Nazgul, but the Nazgul can't see them. He's only sniffing for them. And Frodo becomes completely visible to them when he puts on the ring because he goes into their realm, their spirit wraith realm. And lucky for Frodo, in the first encounter with the Nazgul, before he he knows how dangerous it is to put on the ring, uh, Sam is there to wake him out of the trance that he falls under where he almost puts on the ring um, automatically. And Mary is there to throw a bag of mushrooms far away from them so that the Nazgul is distracted enough to leave them alone. So they're saved from these first couple of encounters with the Nazgul. They manage to make it onto a ferry by a very narrow escape and they get to Bree uh, rather more travel-worn, confused, and scared than they uh, probably hoped they would have been when they set out. But they get to Bree and they ask for Gandalf because Gandalf told them that he would meet them there. When the innkeeper hears Gandalf's name, he recognizes him. He says, oh yes, a tall chap with a pointy beard and, and big gray fellow. And they say yes. And he, the innkeeper says, oh, I haven't seen him in six months. The hobbits take a room anyway, and then they decide they start to talk about what to do. And while they're at this inn, they encounter another two major characters. The first character is one named Strider. And the second character is a full view of Sauron himself, whom uh, has been referred to um, in, in previous parts of the story so far. But we haven't actually seen Sauron's form the form that he will take for the majority of Lord of the Rings until this moment when Frodo slips on the ground and the ring ends up slipping on his finger and he sees Sauron as the eye in front of him and, and feels what it's like in this wraith world, in the invisible world. When he gets the ring off of his finger, that's when he meets Strider, or as we will learn, his name is actually Aragorn. And Strider is the one who saves their lives that night by setting up decoy beds so that the Nazgul, who have been tracking them, come to the inn and stab the hobbits' beds while the hobbits remain safe with Aragorn. When the Nazgul depart and Aragorn is now responsible for the hobbits, he decides to take them to, to Rivendell. As they're going to Rivendell, we see how the hobbits are being forced more and more out of their comfort zone. You know, they're being attacked by mosquitoes. Uh, they don't get to eat all of the meals that they want to eat. They have to travel for longer hours than they're used to. And the climax of the this first adventure in the Fellowship of the Ring happens in a place on the way to Rivendell called Weathertop. And the hobbits finally cave and they light a fire. And Frodo realizes what a bad idea this is. You know, they're on a raised platform and it's a bright fire at night. You know, the smoke 
or the light could lead an enemy to them and now they have both they're very clearly exposed and he stamps the fire out but it's too late and no sooner have they stamped the fire out than the Nazgul are surrounding them but we see that the the hobbits are trying to live in both of their worlds still they're trying to have the comforts of food and fire and home even uh, while they are being pursued by these otherworldly wraiths. At this point in the movie, they haven't quite realized the danger that they are in by embarking on this adventure. They're still holding on to a lot of the things they know from the Shire. In any case, this confrontation on Weathertop climaxes with the hobbits being surrounded by Nazgul at the top of Weathertop, and Frodo succumbing to the presence of the Nazgul's by putting on the ring and going into the Wraith world and he is reaching out almost as if he can't help it that the Nazgul is uh, requiring the ring from Frodo and Frodo seems to reach out as if he feels compelled to give it but he pulls back at the last second and refuses to give the Nazgul the ring, to which the Nazgul reacts by stabbing him in the shoulder. Luckily, Aragorn shows up at this moment and chases them all off with a lit torch and epically throws a torch into one of their faces, but Aragorn can't save Frodo completely from this wound because it's not just a stab in the shoulder, it's also a, a magical wound from a magical blade. The Nazgul carry these Morgul blades or these, you know, dark magic swords. And so the wound that Frodo has acquired uh, immediately sends him into these kind of seizures, uh, these like magical seizures. And it seems to be poisoning him from the inside. And as Aragorn informs us, he will soon become a wraith like them. So he, he's going into the wraith realm permanently. Uh, Sam and Aragorn are both trying to find the herbs that they need to help Frodo when another new character shows up. This one's name is Arwen. Arwen is an elf. She's also the love interest for Aragorn and she comes and discovers Frodo's problem and volunteers to take Frodo back to Rivendell where she came from. She informs them unnecessarily that there are many wraiths uh, chasing them. And because the situation with Frodo is so dire, she volunteers to take Frodo personally back to Rivendell. Aragorn resists, uh, but she wins and she, she gets on the horse with Frodo and takes off towards Rivendell. And as she is going towards Rivendell, we have a great chase scene with her dodging these, all nine Nazgul are now assembled. Uh, up until this point, we've only seen about five ever at once, but now we see all nine of them chasing down Arwen and Arwen is getting towards Rivendell and she makes it across the river, which signifies a border to the land of Rivendell. And the Nazgul seem reluctant to cross, although they are still insistent that she give up the halfling. She refuses, and as soon as the Nazgul have uh, come partway across the river, she calls forth the, the magical powers of the river that's surrounding the elf kingdom, and the, the waters sweep away the Nazgul and effectively nullify that threat. At the end of this first adventure, we are then at a resting point in Rivendell. Arwen has made it just in time. She prays for Frodo after she's crossed the river. Let whatever grace has been granted to me pass to him. Let him live. And then we see 
see Frodo waking up to Gandalf. So this is the end of our first adventure in the Fellowship of the Ring, and the other two we won't go into as much detail, but the pattern can be used in the same way. You can already sense how this first adventure was rather a self-contained story in and of itself, and that's one of the hallmarks of an episodic plot like this, that there was this resting point in the Shire. Then there was the inciting incident of Frodo receiving the ring. They um, acquired knowledge about the ring. We met a bunch of new characters. We kind of assembled the team. Um, then we met the villains, the the opposition that they would be facing for this part of the adventure. We made it through until the climax, and then the climax usually involves some kind of physical, uh, mental, emotional, or spiritual change in the character from which they are completely changed. So they are permanently changed after the climax of the story in any story, in any good story anyway. Um, and that is part of this episode too, that um, Frodo is materially different at the resting point in Rivendell than he was at the resting point in the Shire. So even though we have this little break, we don't have the same Frodo anymore. That Frodo is gone. This Frodo, this new Frodo, the one who wakes up in Rivendell, has a permanent wound from the adventure that he has been through. He also has been changed forever by being a ring bearer for this portion of the journey. We see uh, his outlook on the world is somewhat dimmer, uh, a little bit sobered by the adventure that he's had. He seemed more jovial and more carefree in the Shire, but now he's, he's much more solemn and slow. He's obviously still recovering. And then for our uh, second adventure, we have much the same pattern, that we start in this resting place of Rivendell, uh, but then we have this inciting incident of Elrond's council. We're meeting new characters again. We're assembling an, the next team that we will be using in the second adventure for the Fellowship of the Ring. And the, uh, the team for the second adventure of the Lord of the Ring is, of course, the Fellowship. So Boromir, Legolas, Gimli, uh, Gandalf, and the Hobbits. And Aragorn, I forgot Aragorn. But it's also Elrond. Elrond joins their team, and even though he's not part of the Fellowship, he's also one of the characters that we meet that starts to inform the story from this point onward. And for the very observant viewers, we also know that Elrond has been a part of this story before, that he was part of the history of the ring. He was there 3,000 years ago, as he says. He was there 3,000 years ago when Isildur took the ring and refused to destroy it. So we start to uh, develop a rounder view of what's going on in this world called Middle-earth and who the reliable characters are and who the unreliable characters are. Now, this might be a good time to back up for a second and say that while Frodo was going through this adventure with the hobbits versus the Nazgul, we had a parallel adventure going on with Gandalf and Saruman. They were different in the fact that Gandalf went to Saruman as a friend and discovered he was a traitor and then became a prisoner and got out of prison. But we have the same timeline so that the um, 
story of Gandalf leaving the Shire to go to Saruman to get advice and then uh, fight with him, be captured, be imprisoned, and then rescued, all of that happens in the same timeline in the movie that uh, Frodo's adventure takes, which is a great choice because it ends up making a story pattern much like a, a round would make, like if you're doing row, row, row your boat, and then someone else starts singing row, row, row your boat, then you kind of end at appropriate points in relation to each other to make the song sound good. I don't know if that analogy makes sense, but this is kind of what they've done with the story is that they've created like almost a story round where they started off Frodo's story, but then they started off Gandalf's story too. And then when Frodo's story was completed, then Gandalf's story was completed too. And when Frodo wakes up, we get the conclusion to Gandalf's story. And Gandalf's story is important uh, for this new resting spot in Rivendell because he informs the Council of Elrond that one of their long-term allies, Sauron, has betrayed them and is now working for Sauron. I know it's confusing to have both of these names, and I will probably mix them up before the end of this episode, so just fill in the right name if you know it, and if you don't, then forgive me. But Saruman is working for Sauron, and Saruman used to be a good wizard, but it has now turned evil. His betrayal is an important piece of the following two adventures uh, contained in the Fellowship of the Ring, because as the Fellowship sets out from Rivendell, so Rivendell is our place of rest, El Elrond's council is our inciting incident, and then they, they move out from Rivendell to find a way past the Misty Mountains. That is the objective of this second adventure. Gandalf is leading the way, Frodo is the ring bearer, and the rest of the characters we're still getting a feel for. We have a rough idea of each of them from the Council of Elrond, and we have a better view of the Hobbits and of Aragorn and of Gandalf, but for Legolas, Gimli, Boromir, we are still getting to know them as characters, and this second adventure really solidifies a lot of their character traits. We, we go with them up the mountains because Gandalf chooses to go over the mountain of Caradras, which is a big, big snowy mountain, and he decides to go over this mountain in order to avoid Saruman. Saruman's betrayal is a big part of what motivates the decision-making for this second adventure in the movie, because as Gandalf gets to a high point in the mountains, the whole company has to hide while a group of ravens swoops over them, and Gandalf realizes that these ravens are spies from Isengard, where Saruman lives, and because he sees that one of the one of the three possible routes over or through the Misty Mountains is being watched and would lead them too closely to Isengard, he chooses to take them on a more uh, scenic route through the mountains. And by scenic, I mean perilous and wildly uncomfortable. And when they get up into this mountain, Caradras, and the mountain is basically falling on top of them, largely because Saruman is also directing a huge storm to be over Caradras. 
Gandalf realizes that they can't make it through this way. And that when the company starts to talk about it, Gimli suggests for a, a multiple time, he suggested it before, but I don't remember how many times, but it's not the first time Gandalf has considered the third route through the Misty Mountains, which is to go under the mountains through the mines of Moria. Gimli is a dwarf and has relatives who uh, are hopefully alive in the mines of Moria. And so he's excited about going through the mines and he suggests it again. However, we as the audience get a little bit more foreshadowing about Moria than the rest of the company does because we listen to some of Saruman's words as Gimli is suggesting the minds of Moria again and Saruman is detailing how Gandalf doesn't want to go through the minds of Moria because the dwarves there dug too deep and unearthed something terrible in the depths of the earth and when Gandalf puts the question to Frodo, it doesn't feel completely fair because he doesn't actually inform Frodo of, of the dangers of the other path, but he says, well, let's just let the ring bearer decide and Frodo chooses the Mines of Moria. And when they go down to the Mines of Moria, we, we start the real escalation to our climax for the second adventure. The, the second climax leads us to a horrendous underground battle with thousands of orcs and goblins all around the company and then culminates with a confrontation between Gandalf, the the most magically powerful member of their company, and a creature that doesn't even show its face until the very end called the Balrog. The Balrog ends up falling into a chasm but just as Gandalf thinks he has defeated this Balrog, he gets whipped around the ankle with the Balrog's whip and is sucked into the chasm too. Losing Gandalf is probably the most traumatic thing that could happen to Frodo at this point in the movie. He loves his friends and he would have been heartbroken for for any of them and especially probably for any of his hobbit friends if they had been lost but Gandalf was his personal protector he was very much like a parent for Frodo and as we talked about in the Spider-Man episode how it often happens that the protagonist has to be separated from their safety nets which often means their parents uh, in order to have their own standalone adventure. We see that happening again here with Frodo because uh, Frodo was technically an orphan already, adopted by Bilbo, and Bilbo was left at Rivendell. But really, during this adventure, Gandalf has been acting as his guide, his protector, his father figure in many ways. He's been shepherding Frodo through uh, many of the decisions and hardships that he's facing. And when Gandalf falls, it is devastating for the whole company because he was their guide to the right place. But especially for Frodo, this is a devastating loss uh, because he's lost his most important shield between him and Sauron. After this, it becomes very apparent that this conflict is between Frodo and Sauron and the ring and that no one can really do that for him. 
in the next resting place, which is in Lothlorien, another elvish community. They rest in Lothlorien and Frodo meets Galadriel, whom we have heard from the, the beginning of the movie in narration, but have only met now in the movie. When Frodo meets Galadriel, she shows him several things, several possibilities about the future through her magic mirror. But the maybe the most important thing that she shows him is that she is also a ring bearer. She is one of the three elves who bears a magic ring and so she can understand to some extent what Frodo is going through and when Frodo discovers this he grabs on to the possibility that Galadriel might be able to take the ring maybe there is someone else who could do this for him so that he doesn't uh, have to go through with it so that he doesn't have to do the rest of this very difficult work but when he offers Galadriel the ring she responds in much the same way that Gandalf did, which is she knows that the ring is desirable, but she also knows that it would corrupt her and turn her into an evil queen. And she lets go of that possibility and chooses instead to stay as she is. Galadriel, the bearer of her own ring and not the evil queen overlord of the entire realm. When Galadriel refuses the ring, we can see the weight which momentarily lifted just a fraction as Frodo considered the possibility of not having to go through this whole journey and to feel so isolated. He, you can see that it lifts on him for just a moment uh, as he offers it to Galadriel but settles on him quickly again when she determines that she will remain Galadriel. And he says, I, I can't do this alone. And Galadriel says just about the least reassuring thing she could say to Frodo at this point, which is, to bear a ring of power is to be alone. This task was appointed to you, and if you do not find a way, no one will. And with this moment, we have the inciting incident for our third adventure in the Fellowship. We, we kind of skipped over the resting phase in large part for this second adventure, but they, you know, they started in Rivendell, they ended in Lothlorien, the climax left them completely different. The Frodo that we, we have in Lothlorien is a different Frodo even from the one that we had in Rivendell, and the one that was in Rivendell was different from the one that we began with. So we're seeing Frodo transform before our eyes into a new character, and in some ways he's stronger because of these adventures that he's been through, but his character is also bearing more grief and pain and loneliness than he was at the beginning of this movie. This is a hard thing to watch for Frodo, but I also love that they portrayed that because oftentimes in adventures, the the hero or the protagonist or the main character, whoever it is, doesn't come out unscathed. They, they should be different and they are probably not just different in good ways. They've probably sustained some injuries if they've encountered real obstacles. And so we can see with Frodo that he is hitting his wall over and over again, the limits of what he thought he could do, the limits of what he thought he could feel, the limits of what he thought the world could hold um, in terms of evil and in terms of good. 
he's um he's grown wiser and more measured more sobered uh as a result of this adventure and even though it's not been easy i love that they show both sides of that transformation for frodo so with the beginning of the third adventure we see the fellowship departing from lorian and galadriel and her elves bestow a lot of gifts upon the company before they depart gifts that will protect them or facilitate them in their journeys mary and pippin get daggers they all get cloaks uh, legolas gets a bow sam gets elven rope they give them food uh, galadriel gives frodo the light of elendil which she says will be a light to you in dark places and is really important in the third lord of the rings uh, installment but all of these gifts and things are the preparation that the fellowship needs the restocking refueling uh, that the fellowship needs in order to embark on their third portion of the adventure and with their third adventure, they go down a river. And you'll notice that each of these adventures has also been made very visually different. The, the first adventure was um, really rural through the countryside. And then the second was mountainous and pretty rugged, uh, both over and under the mountain. And this third adventure is largely taking place on the river or on the banks of the river. They go down the river and there's a rather confusing montage of Yurikai uh, creatures that have been bred by Saruman uh, looking or reacting to them in the boats and then the uh, people in the boats like Legolas are reacting to the Yurikai and it's not, not really clear what direction everything is going. Are they in the same place at the same time? It's one of the few parts of this whole trilogy that I think uh, wasn't done with impeccable quality the, that little montage is just a little bit confusing but the essence that i think they were trying to communicate is that the two groups are sensing each other as they get closer together and sure enough as they get to the end of the route that they can travel by water aragorn who is now leading the company pulls the boats over to the side and they make camp and he announces the plan that they will approach mortar from the north they should rest now and then they'll go through that way some of the company object but you know there's really no happy way to go to mordor so aragorn just takes their objections and says this is the way it's going to be anyway so so they've announced the plan and then uh, mary comes back from collecting firewood and asks about where frodo is and all of a sudden the company realizes that Frodo has left to go off on his own and Aragorn realizes that Boromir ha is also gone. This is significant because all through these this last these last two adventures Boromir has been showing signs of succumbing to the ring. He was showing those signs even at the Council of Elrond, but the signs of trouble have been mounting as the story continues. We then switch perspectives to go catch up with Frodo, just as Frodo is realizing that Boromir has followed him up into the woods above the riverbank. And when Frodo realizes that Boromir has followed him, he is also instantly suspicious. Boromir tries to be friendly, but quickly digresses into asking for the one ring. Frodo says no, and it's one of the only times 
that Frodo doesn't offer the ring to to one whom he sees as a superior. You know, he's offered it to Gandalf, he's offered it to Galadriel, he gave it to Elrond for the Council of Elrond, but he says no to Boromir because he can feel that Boromir wants it for the wrong reasons. And Boromir lunges for Frodo, and Frodo has to use the ring in order to escape from Boromir. Uh, Boromir snaps out of it pretty quickly when he trips on some leaves and realizes what he's done, but it's too late because Frodo has gone and he has permanently damaged the relationship with Frodo because of seeking the ring instead of being Frodo's caretaker. Frodo makes it away from Boromir and takes the ring off when he can't stand being in the sight of the eye anymore and is then found by Aragorn who asks Frodo about the ring and Frodo perceives it to be another advance at trying to take the ring. They both quickly recover and Aragorn clarifies that, you know, he swore, I swore to protect you. I'm not asking to take the ring. He was just worried that something might have happened. Uh, and Frodo realizes that he was reading something that wasn't there onto Aragorn's expression. And he hands the ring out to Aragorn and asks him if he would destroy it. And Aragorn has a pivotal moment here, which we will spend just, just a minute on, because Aragorn has had this great character arc in the movie of not wanting to inherit the crown of Gondor, not wanting the responsibility of leading or being in proximity to the ring, because he feels the pressure of his ancestors and the mistakes that his ancestors, and specifically Isildur. Isildur was his ancestor who cut off the ring from Sauron's hand and then took the ring for himself instead of destroying it. Uh, as Galadriel says, evil was allowed to endure because Isildur allowed himself to be seduced by the, the power of the ring, the spell of the ring. Thus, Aragorn has been fighting uh, in the background with himself about, about the legacy that he has inherited because of this grand mistake that his ancestor Isildur made. And well, while we're in Rivendell, we see a scene with Aragorn and Arwen, who is his, his love interest. And Aragorn is looking at the shards of the sword that was broken the sword that cut the ring from Sauron's hand. And as he is looking at the sword and uh, paying reverence to being in its pre presence, Arwen approaches behind him and says, why do you fear the past? And Aragorn admits that he feels that the same weakness that was in Isildur is in him too. And he doesn't want to make a mistake like Isildur made that will cause huge amplified problems later on. So he resists claiming his leadership role as the king of Gondor, preferring to stay as a ranger in order to avoid uh, the power traps that often accompany being in a leadership role like that. So we can tell he's a very noble character because he's thought through these things and even as he is respectful in honoring the deeds of his ancestors. He is also aware of their mistakes. Arwen responds to Aragorn and says, 
you will face the same evil and you will defeat it. The question I had in my mind when she asked this question the first many times that I watched the movie was how does she know? How does she know that he'll defeat it? What backing does she have for this conclusion? And I had never realized how brilliant the filmmakers were in structuring all of these beginning scenes in in the way that they did. But if you'll look at the order of these scenes, directly after she has this conversation with Aragorn in front of the sword, it cuts, it switches to another scene, also between Arwen and Aragorn, as they're talking about uh, meeting and falling in love. And they are in this new scene, they're on a bridge and it's all very romantically moonlit and Arwen is asking Aragorn if he remembers what she said to him and he says, uh, you said that you would bind yourself to me. This is Aragorn speaking to Arwen. You said that you would bind yourself to me and that you would forsake the immortal life. And she says, and to that I hold. And we don't really know all of how, you know, the elvish immortality works. The elves in Tolkien's Middle Earth are immortal, except they can die in battle or they can die of a broken heart. And Arwen apparently also has the ability to give her immortality away. And she is offering to give that immortality away in order to be with Aragorn. So very romantic, but this scene isn't placed there coincidentally. This scene is how Arwen knows that Aragorn can refuse the pull of the One Ring. Because when Arwen offers her immortality, uh, she, she offers to give away this immortality so that she can be with Aragorn. And the symbol of that is with this necklace of hers called the Even Star. And she presses it into his hand and he says, you cannot give me this. And she says, it's mine to give to whom I will. And, and he doesn't respond in scene, but it's clear that he's very disturbed and, and troubled that she would sacrifice this much for him. And even though he he loves her and wants to be with her, he doesn't want her to give up this immense gift of immortality that she has in order to be with him. So we can see that Arwen knows Aragorn is strong enough to refuse the pull of the One Ring like Isildur could not or did not because he has already refused or tried to refuse one of the things that he desires most. She can see that even on a smaller scale, you know, these are the stakes are much lower in the relationship between Arwen and Aragorn, but the pull has got to be very similar. He wants to save her. He wants her good more than he wants his own good. And she sees that core of goodness in Aragorn and knows that it is strong enough to also propel him beyond the lust for the One Ring, that he would value the good of Middle-earth or the good of the Kingdom of Gondor or whatever it is when he's facing that challenge. He would value the good overall versus his own individual pleasure. And to return to this scene with Aragorn and Frodo, we see that he validates all of that trust that she had in him. Because when Frodo holds out the ring to Aragorn and says, would you destroy it? He hears the voice of Sauron calling to him. He feels 
the pull of the ring as he places his hand near Frodo's. But then he kneels in front of Frodo. He puts himself on the same level of Frodo, closes Frodo's hand, and pushes it back to Frodo, acknowledging him as the ring bearer and says, I would have gone with you to the end, into the very fires of Mordor. It's a beautiful character moment for Aragorn and very satisfying for us as an audience to know that even though some members of the company, like Boromir, may have fallen under the spell of the ring, that there was still Aragorn there, that Aragorn still resisted, uh, and that the ring doesn't hold sway over everyone. Much like Arwen says, that the, the evil does not hold sway over you or over me. She says that when she's talking to Aragorn, and she is absolutely right. That Aragorn can resist the power of the ring is a significant facet of his character. Right after this, he sees that Frodo's sword has started glowing blue and knows that that means there are enemies near, there's orc blood near, and he understands that Frodo means to take the journey on by himself now, and he offers to cover for Frodo with whatever enemies are coming so that he can escape. So Frodo runs back down the mountain, back to the riverbank, while Aragorn moves forward to face this oncoming horde of Urukai from Saruman. This third and final adventure for the Fellowship of the Ring thus has two climaxes, really. There's this emotional and psychological climax with Boromir and Aragorn as Frodo is deciding that he needs to leave alone. And part of that same climax is Sam deciding to go with Frodo and insisting that he go with Frodo, even at the risk of drowning before he gets to Frodo's boat when Frodo tries to leave Sam behind. That's all part of the same emotional psychological climax. Then there is a physical confrontation between the rest of the company and the Yurikai. The Yurikai have come from Saruman and they have instructions to get the halflings and bring them back to Saruman. The Yurikai don't know how many halflings there are. They don't know which one they're looking for. They're just looking for halflings. So when they encounter the rest of the company, they zero in on Merry and Pippin and go after them to bring back to Saruman while the rest of the company does everything they can to protect Merry and Pippin and fight them off. In each of these climaxes, you'll notice there has been a major casualty sustained by whoever is around the ring bearer. In the first adventure, the casualty was Frodo himself. He was the one who sustained the injury and carries that injury through the rest of the story and the rest of his fictional life. In the second adventure, the casualty was Gandalf as he fell down the chasm after the Balrog. In this battle, in this third confrontation, the casualty is Boromir. He is the casualty both in the emotional and psychological climax between Frodo and Boromir and in this physical confrontation with the Uruks. And the combination of those climaxes with Boromir at the center of both of them makes it a really heart-wrenching scene to watch because we as the audience see Boromir's flaws but we also see his strength and nobility 
too. And, and his death may be even more than any other single death in uh, the Lord of the Rings story shows us the price that Sauron is exacting on Middle-earth. Boromir shows us that even the good men, even the noble men, even the strong men fall under the sway of the ring. And we see through this microcosm of Boromir all that is lost when a powerful evil is present. Because Boromir is not a bad guy. He is a good man with a good heart. He has noble intentions. He uh, wants to help the fellowship. He's been fighting to protect the hobbits and to usher the company safely towards Mordor this whole time. He didn't have intentional um, designs to betray or sabotage other members of the company. And yet even he was sucked into the wake of the ring. And that kind of casualty affects us really strongly. Uh, it's not that hard to watch orcs die. They're obviously baddies and we don't care about orcs. It's hard to watch Gandalf die because he's good and he's a protection. It's heart-wrenching to watch Boromir die because we know he's made mistakes, but we also know he's tried really hard and he doesn't have time to fully make up for the mistakes that he made. So Boromir's death is a linchpin that holds this whole this whole first installment of the Lord of the Rings together because it communicates to us as the audience the immense cost that this war over the ring is going to to take it communicates the immense evil that they are up against and the many ways that the evil can sink into um the different characters because it doesn't just sink in as the arrows do by piercing Boromir physically. It also sunk into it, his heart. It also damaged him internally. And that is much harder for us to, to see and recover from as an audience. The nice thing about this ending is that it does give Boromir a certain measure of redemption for uh, seeking the ring from Frodo, that even though he did have these internal weaknesses, that he pulled through in the end and died nobly, died honorably, as Aragorn affirms when Boromir is dying. And uh, the relationship between Aragorn and Boromir is also a really beautiful one to watch. They start out as more like sparring partners, like rivals, and they turn into friends by the end of the movie, into real comrades. And Aragorn's words of peace to Boromir as he's dying are also... They're not what we as the audience might have said to Boromir, but they're what we as the audience wanted for Boromir. We want Boromir to know that we forgive him, that he can die in peace, that he ended his life honorably, even if he made mistakes before the end. So that's Boromir. After, um, after Boromir's death, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli go off to track Merry and Pippin to save them from the Urukai, and Frodo and Sam go to the eastern shore to go to go on the most direct route to Mordor. These um, these additional endings after this climax 
don't quite bring us to a resting place like some of the other adventures ended. Each of the other adventures ended with a very clear rest and recuperation phase. And this uh, adventure doesn't end so much with a rest as with a re-energizing of the mission. The three who are left of the fellowship, uh, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, reset their purpose to be rescuing Merry and Pippin, while Frodo and Sam reset their purpose to be traveling on together alone. These two endings both allow us to leave the movie where it is with a sense of forward motion that the the journey isn't done yet. You could never finish the Lord of the Rings and not want to see the rest of Lord of the Rings. Uh, if, if you've really been caught up with the story, you don't get to a resolution that is so complete that you don't feel compelled to watch the rest of the story. However, you do get to a point of semi-rest where they're not in the middle of a battle, they're not in immediate danger, they have friends with them, they have a certain uh, level of security as far as resources and position go, and things are okay at the end of, of the Fellowship of the Ring. And then the attitude of the characters, Aragorn saying, we will not abandon Merry to Merry and Pippin to torment and death. We're going to go rescue them. Let's hunt some orc is a rallying cry. It's it's invigorating. And then Frodo talking to Sam as they go into Mordor saying, Sam, I am happier with me is another validating moment for us. So we get to end the movie with a certain amount of resolution, but not so much that we feel complete about the story. It's a perfect ending for the beginning of something like a trilogy like this because it, it gives us just enough information to end the story in a good place but not so much that we uh, are content to just walk away from the overall story. We will still be looking for the next installment of the overall story. So that concludes our summary for The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first uh, part of that trilogy, which means that now we get to do the really fun part. We get to analyze this beautiful, beautiful story. Let's start with looking at some of the differences between the book and the movie because there is a popular attitude out there that says the book is always better than the movie. And in this case, that is true in some ways and not true in others. And it's really helpful to have a little knowledge of both, to have the book and the movie. Most of the book's strength in the writing comes from Tolkien's deep roots in studying mythology and language and cultural history. He was an incredible scholar, very, very thorough uh, in studying all of those things things, languages, history, mythology, etc. in uh, Western Europe. And so he knew fairy tales and mythology in a way that people who just read those stories will never know them. Like he knew them intimately, the structure, the, the language patterns, the rhyming patterns, the, the old 
languages that were used to write those old stories. He knew all of those things really well and he was always fascinated with languages, which is why he started developing what became the Elvish language at about age 16. And in fact, by the time he had written most of Lord of the Rings, he suggested publishing it in its Elvish language, in his own Elvish language. The publisher said no for some obvious reasons, but he was just that in love with languages. And you can feel that in the books. You can feel all of that love for history and for language and for culture because he created Middle-earth and the story of Lord of the Rings mostly as like the whipped cream on his elaborate ice cream sundae that was the history of Middle-earth. He loved creating the history of Middle-earth and Lord of the Rings is just the barest uh, topping on all of that history. It is, it, it wasn't the other way around. He didn't write in backstories to fill in Lord of the Rings. He was writing the history of Middle Earth all the time. And when people resonated strongly with The Hobbit and the publishers asked him to come back and do some sequels to The Hobbit, he wrote Lord of the Rings based on the histories that he had been playing with and developing and molding for years. So in the book, you can feel that, in, that deep love for the form in the way that he writes. Unfortunately, that's not really the way most modern audiences appreciate fantasy books uh, because it tends to include, for Tolkien, it includes a lot of long passages describing the scenery or describing the environment. And long songs and poems all written in an ancient cadence and usually when you're reading through them especially as a modern audience we have certain expectations for songs and poems that don't match the way that the old world wrote songs and poems thus when tolkien was writing after these old forms uh, and using old rhyme patterns and old words and things and old uh, verbal constructs to communicate the age of the world. It doesn't flow as well for a modern reader because we don't really want to read three pages of a song history. That's not how we prefer to absorb the information in a fantasy novel anymore. So in those ways, it is more fun to watch the movie. They've tightened up the movie in a lot of ways that keep it flowing and moving from scene to scene at a much better pace than the books themselves go. In addition, the books tend to wander off into these tangents about other creatures or other adventures. For example, one part of the, the Fellowship of the Ring, the book, that's completely skipped in the movie is Frodo, Mary, Sam, and Pippin all going into the woods to meet another character named Tom Bombadil. And with Tom Bombadil, they actually get captured by a ghost who lives in a, um, a big grave, like a Viking-type grave called a barrow. And the ghost there is um, going to do horrible things to them until Tom Bombadil shows up again and saves them from the ghost. And this is where the hobbits get their weapons. And it's, it's all very rambling. It doesn't directly apply to the conflict between Frodo and the ring or, or the 
Fellowship of the Ring and Sauron, and it makes perfect sense why they cut it in the movie. It is fun to read, it is fun to know about, and it makes you seem rather uh, well-read if you can come into Lord of the Rings and then start talking about Tom Bombadil and how they didn't cover that part of the movie. But beyond that, there's not much point of the Tom Bombadil excursion in the overall story of the Fellowship of the Ring. Peter Jackson's edits to the story really tighten up the the main focus of the entire tale and focus it better around Frodo and his companions rather than being about the world itself. That said, there are some significant differences between the way the book and the movie portray certain characters and for that reason it's really nice to have a backing with the book to know the book pretty well in order to better understand some of the characters and their motivations in the movie. Some of the motivations for the characters have been significantly changed from the way that they were in the book, which is fine. You can ask questions about that. Maybe it's good in some ways and maybe it's bad in some ways. If you're asking questions about why the filmmakers chose to do that, then you will likely come up with really interesting answers. But the, the point is that they do change some of the motivations for the characters. And it's nice to have the book to augment our view of those characters in the movie. For example, going back to this first adventure, with uh, Frodo. As he is uh, coming out of the Barrow Downs and they have these swords, so this is in the portion of the book that is not included in the movie. In the Barrow Downs is where Frodo and his companions obtain weapons and the weapons were guarded by this ghost that Tom Bombadil freed them from. And when they carry these weapons all the way through, you know, Bree, and then with Aragorn, they're going to Rivendell, and they get to Weathertop. When they get to Weathertop and they're surrounded by Nazgul, the Nazgul see Frodo's sword and they realize that he has the sword that was guarded by this barrow down ghost. And all of a sudden in the book, they are wary of Frodo. They, they're they a little bit afraid of Frodo because of this weapon that he is wielding because they think that he defeated the Barrow Down ghost in order to obtain his weapon. Then in addition, uh, on Weathertop, this was a key moment of differences for the book and the movie. In, in the book, Frodo tries to strike first. In the movie, it's Sam, and they're developing a theme of Samwise the Brave in the movie, so I think that has some merit too. But in the book, when Frodo strikes first, he comes off as much bolder and much more committed to this task than he does in the movie when he just drops his sword and falls backward and, and kind of flails around until he's stabbed. Uh, in in the book, he lunges for the Nazgul with this sword. I mean, and you remember, Frodo hasn't had any training with weapons, so he doesn't know how to use a sword necessarily. He's just going for it against these really terrifying creatures that he has never encountered before. And he lunges for the Nazgul and tries to chop at their feet 
with this sword. And as he lunges forward, he cries out a name that he has learned from Gandalf called uh, Elbereth Gilthoniel. And this name uh, is often used by the elves. And when the when the Nazgul hear him invoking the name Elbereth Gilthoniel, uh, they think he's allied with the High Elves. They see that he has the Barrow Down Sword, and they get pretty nervous about fighting Frodo. They try to stab him, but but because he's lunging at them, they miss his heart. They don't kill him. Instead, it just goes into his shoulder, which also makes more sense than it does in the movie, where uh, when Frodo pulls back the ring and the Nazgul in the movie just decides to stab Frodo in the shoulder. Isn't one of your first questions, well, why didn't he just kill Frodo? You know, he's not, he wasn't pitying Frodo or <laughs> trying to let him live or, or, or anything humane like that. So it doesn't make sense why the Nazgul decides against killing Frodo uh, in the movie, where in the book it makes perfect sense because Frodo's bravery saves his life in removing him out of the direct path of the Nazgul and causing only his shoulder to be wounded instead of being pierced through the heart. So in the book, Frodo is a much more powerful character that way. He tends to exhibit a lot more bravery and a lot more commitment to his actions than he does in the movie, which is a great reason to have that that background with the book before even watching the movie or in addition to watching the movie. There are other characters like that too, like Aragorn. Um, his motivations differ slightly. The three other characters who all come to Rivendell, Boromir, Legolas, Gimli, they all have their own story as to why they are at Rivendell and you don't know those stories unless you've read the book. In Rivendell, it looks like Elrond has summoned people from all across Middle-earth and that they've all come for this council when really the council just happened uh, because all of these people converged at Rivendell at the same time. Boromir had had this very prophetic dream that was telling him to go to Rivendell, and Gimli was going as an emissary from the dwarf nations who were being approached by Sauron to join in league with him, and uh, Legolas came for some other reasons, and you don't, you don't get those reasons, those backstories. You don't get the depth of character for each of those characters, if you haven't read the book also. In addition to the book proper, so the, the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, there are also all of the ancillary, auxiliary books that Tolkien wrote or pages that he wrote and that his, his son assembled into books after he died uh, that detail the history of Middle-earth. And these books also provide a lot of information that isn't communicated with the movie, but that tends to make the movie more meaningful if you do know it. In the beginning of the movie especially, we start to get exposed to all of these different names, places, creatures, and and things that make it sound just like many other fantasy novels of the modern day. What we don't see from the movie is that there were no fantasy novels like there are in this modern day without Tolkien. Tolkien started the fantasy novel. The Hobbit was the first 
novel of its kind. He completely made a world for his characters to be moving around in, and most of the modern fantasy authors are trying to piggyback on Tolkien, the way that Tolkien created this world. And many of them tend to even try to hijack Tolkien's world and um, just change it in in ways that they think would be cool. In my opinion, I have not seen a fantasy uh, author do as good of a job as Tolkien, uh, but that's because I don't think any modern fantasy authors have spent as much time and poured as much devotion into learning real history and real languages as Tolkien did. He was able to make a world that felt real and sounded real because he spent a lot of time observing and studying the real world in order to create that fictional world. And I don't know of any fantasy authors in the modern day who do that. But this is, this is attended. Getting back to the other history about Middle-earth. If you have the desire or the patience, you can start reading about any aspect of Lord of the Rings and find a rabbit hole waiting to uh, suck you into the deeper history and mythology behind Middle-earth. Just one of those aspects, I am not a Middle-earth historian, so you can do your own research if you would like more detail than I provide. But one of the things that I thought was interesting was this history of the rings, because in the beginning portion, the voiceover from Galadriel and the cinematography make it sound like Sauron made all of these rings himself personally, and then he divvied them up like he was dealing a pack of Uno cards out to all of the different races, and he gave three to the elves, and seven to the dwarves, and nine to the men, and, and then he made one that was going to rule them all. That's the way it sounds in the movie. The actual history that Tolkien wrote for these rings of power makes it much more interesting. In Tolkien's history, Sauron has been around for a very, very, very long time. And before he lost his physical shape, he was actually a shapeshifter and he could change his appearance and uh, put himself into different disguises. In one of these times, he disguised himself as an elf and came to one of the uh, elven communities of Middle-earth called Eregion and convinced the elves there to start making rings with him. And he brought them some kind of special knowledge about how to make these magic rings. And the elves in that region were uh, very interested in learning more about how to make powerful magical objects. So they took his knowledge and then he helped them make these rings and they made uh, seven uh, rings. They made a bunch of practice rings and then they made the seven rings that eventually went to dwarves and then they made a batch of nine rings which were the ones that eventually went to the lords of men. But at this point they were still in the custody of the elves. Sauron, Sauron in disguise, his disguise name was Anatar, I think. After he had finished uh, convincing the elves to make these rings and backstory to this backstory, he wanted the elves to make the rings because he wanted the elves to wear the rings. He wanted the most powerful creatures in Middle-earth to be under his control and the most powerful creatures were the elves. So he wanted the elves to be subjugated to him, which is why he made these rings with the elves. 
Anyway, after he finishes making the the rings with the elves, he leaves uh, and goes back to Mount Doom where he starts forging his one ring. While he's gone or in transit, the elves of Eregion, the ones who were forging the rings, take the knowledge that they gained from Anatar or Sauron and put it to good use, making three beautiful rings which Sauron had no part in creating. They distribute these rings among three of the more powerful elven leaders. Uh, however, at the time that Sauron puts on his one ring, all of a sudden the bearers of the three elven rings become aware of him. And they realize, they hear him uttering this, this ring spell about how he he's going to find them all and in the darkness bind them and they hear him uttering this spell on the one ring and they realize they have been betrayed that the rings that they made with Sauron are all infected so to speak with with evil and they hide those rings away they hide the seven rings they hide the nine rings so that no one will wear them and so that Sauron can't get them Sauron is furious that they won't wear the rings he made with them and when they won't wear them he demands that they hand them over to him so that he can give them to someone else and subjugate them instead and when the elves refuse he declares war on the elves and decimates the region just completely demolishes that part of the elven kingdom which is why Eregion is no longer a place by the time we join Frodo with Middle-earth Eregion seems to be the elvish community that actually constructs the the doors into Moria. If you look at the the doors, which are of elvish design, they were constructed when the elves and the dwarves were friends. And the password is in elvish. And if I remember correctly, it's this community of elves that was destroyed by Sauron that was also in communication with the dwarves through that door. So back to Sauron. He is demanding the rings. The elves won't give them. Uh, he declares war on the elves, demolishes this uh, civilization of the elves, this community of the elves. However, uh, the elves ultimately defeat him in this war. He does find the stash of the 16 rings that they had refused to hand over and with that stash with the the group of seven and the group of nine he gives those to the dwarves and to the men instead of to more elves the dwarves however prove to be incredibly hardy and resistant to his evil overlordness uh, they never completely come under his subjugation however they do suffer ill effects they use the magic rings uh, to enhance their power in amassing their treasure hordes but these treasure hordes also attract all kinds of bad creatures such as the dragon smog whom we meet in the hobbit so the dwarves don't become servants to sauron like the ring wraiths do like the men However, they, they do suffer some ill effects. And then, uh, as it's just mentioned, Sauron gives the nine rings to nine lords of men. And those men are easily corrupted 
by the rings and quickly pass into the realm of of the wraiths where they have no will of their own they're just mindless servants of sauron uh, at that point and they they can't do anything for themselves this whole explanation is to illuminate some of why galadriel a good elf will still wear her ring even though it's a ring of power that is somewhat connected to the one ring it is not subject to sauron she can't be controlled by sauron but she is very aware of sauron because of this connection through the rings because of the connection uh, caused by their forging and thus the she and elrond they both wear magic rings uh two of the of the rings of power that were given to the elves but they are not under the power of Sauron, nor are they servants of Sauron like the ring wraiths. Just to finish out this sketch I've made for you of the rings, the three elven rings each have different powers, and Galadriel's ring, which is a ring of water, is especially empowered to preserve and protect and beautify. And you can see all of those gifts in play, in Lothlorien. And you can also hear it reflected in some of the dialogue that they use around Lothlorien when, for example, the, the commander elf tells Aragorn, this evil cannot be concealed in Lothlorien. Lothlorien cannot conceal this evil because one of Nenya's powers is to conceal from evil. So Lothlorien is largely hidden from Sauron because of Nenya. Nenya is protecting that community of elves, even though it's much closer to Mordor than the other elvish communities. And when Haldir sees or senses that the One Ring has come into Lothlorien, he says Lothlorien cannot conceal this. And if you know some of this background about the magic rings, then all of that dialogue becomes just a little bit more uh, meaningful, more apparent, because they're not just talking about some abstract idea of, uh, like, we can't, we can't help hide you, but they're, they're saying, Nenya's power has been preserving Lothlorien and we're endangering this entire community of elves by allowing you to stay here and giving you refuge. It makes their their sacrifice much more real than if the fellowship was just coming there to get a couple bites to eat or something. And then in addition, the the third ring, the one that I haven't talked about is is an elvish ring with powers of fire. It's called the Ring of Fire, I think. And that ring was passed through several elves until it ended up with Gandalf. And you can also see a lot of a lot of Gandalf's behavior reflecting um, powers of fire, such as his fireworks or lighting up a dark cavern. Some of the powers of this fire ring, which is called Narya, are that it makes the wearer invisible to remote observation except by the wielder of the one ring it also gives this power to inspire others to resist tyranny and gives the wearer some resistance to the passage of time and we can see all of those things in gandalf one of his major roles in the whole trilogy of lord of the rings is to go around and inspire these different groups 
to resist Sauron. First he inspires Frodo and then he inspires Elrond and then he he goes to Galadriel for part of it. Then he really does his work with men in inspiring Theoden and in inspiring Gondor. He's fanning the embers of resistance all the time and that's why he's running back and forth between all of these different places and using his powers, maybe innate powers as aided by this magic ring to bring the flame of independence back to life in Middle-earth. One of the other things that you'll notice about the differences between the characters portrayed in the book and the characters portrayed in the movie is that all of the characters in the movie are just slightly caricatured. They're pushed just a little bit farther into the extreme than they are in the book. Uh, Aragorn is pushed farther into a reluctance towards returning to Gondor, and Pippin is pushed into looking much goofier or much more careless in the movie than he is in the book. And those things uh, may frustrate dedicated fans of the book, but overall in the movie we're dealing with a lot of different characters, a whole bunch of history, and so the caricaturizing in the movie makes a lot of sense because it helps us to distinguish between the different characters and attach different memories and different emotions to them very quickly even though we're only with them for three hours. That's a long time for a movie, but pretty short time when you compare it to the overall series or the the book reading. Now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Tolkien himself. There's a famous quote, and I forget who said it, but the famous quote says something to the effect of, you can never write anything except what you are. And I think that is very true with Lord of the Rings, that we see Tolkien in every inch of Lord of the Rings. And when you start to learn about his life, you see all of the the different things that may have contributed to writing Lord of the Rings. This is not an attempt to put words in Tolkien's mouth as to what he meant by certain things. That's a very dangerous thing to do with an author because you'll, you'll be wrong 90% of the time. But it is an effort to say that looking at an author's context can give us a lot of interesting insight as to the way they are writing and what they are writing. We already mentioned his love of languages and history, uh, which clearly inform the writing of Lord of the Rings. But we should also remember that Tolkien served in one of the world wars. He was serving in World War One, and he was watching all of World War II unfold as he was writing Lord of the Rings. You know, the first book, The Hobbit, was released in 1937 at the, still at the beginning end of World War II. However, by the time it was published in 1954, he had watched the entire drama of World War II unfold right outside his door, you know, his neighbors, his colleagues, his students were being sent to war and some of them never came back. And combine that with his personal experience with war where he grew up in a rather peaceful time pre-war and then was sent headlong into World War I, which was probably one of the most misery-intensive times of human history, you can see how deeply he understands war as he writes Lord of the Rings. Because you don't just 
feel the thrill of battle or the thrill of victory when when he is writing about battles. When he's writing in these battles for Lord of the Rings, you feel the entire spectrum of loss, grief, pain, struggle. It's all there. For us, it's only an emotional register because we are not actually feeling, you know, the arrows piercing us like Boromir did or the wound going into our shoulder. But we can feel the intense weariness and the intense struggle involved in these battles and also the intense need for hope and the determination to stop Sauron or die trying. Because Tolkien made his battles and this War of the Ring so incredible, so layered, it's completely understandable that a lot of modern fantasy writers have tried to copy that approach and involve big epic battles in their, in their books or in their stories. But I have never seen another fantasy that captures a similar feeling to the one that I get when Tolkien describes his battles. Of course, I haven't personally been in a battle, so I can't compare it to that. But I can sense the difference in the quality of the way that Tolkien portrays his battles. And I think Peter Jackson largely preserved that in the, in the movies with the way that many other fantasy authors depict violence and war. Another key area where we can look at Tolkien's life for information on how the, the story unfolds is how highly he valued friendships. And this connects with the history in war that he connected with other men on a different level by serving with them in the first world war and then came back and he got married had kids he had four kids i think um, and then he was a professor but he maintained these strong male friendships throughout his life many different male friendships and it's really fascinating to read about him and his friendships because they approached friendship in a very different way than we do in the modern world. In the modern world, what we call friendships are usually mostly acquaintances. It's rare to have real friends in the modern world. Friends uh, under Tolkien's definition of friends. And you see his definition of friends coming out in the Fellowship of the Ring, where these characters really would die for each other, to protect each other, to help each other accomplish their goals. And he was that kind of committed to his friendships. It seems like at the end of his life, that may have uh, changed a little bit with age, but at least for, for much of his life, he spent a lot of of time and effort investing in his friends. And I see a lot of that evidenced in the way that he portrays the friendships in Lord of the Rings. It's a great movie to examine our ideas about friendship because we get so many different examples of what it means to be a friend. Sam is a different kind of friend to Frodo than Aragorn is. And Aragorn is a different kind of friend to uh, Boromir than Legolas or Gimli are to each other. And there are just many different ways of, of being a friend. And the more 
people are involved with the friendship, the more interesting all of the friends become to one another because the different friends bring out different aspects of the other friends. So it's not just a, a two-player game. All of the different lines of friendship are important. Pippin needs Mary, but Pippin also needs Gandalf, and Pippin also needs Gimli and Legolas. They all need and benefit from being each other's friends. And I think uh, The Lord of the Rings is, is a great place to look at the way that Tolkien viewed friendships because it showcases the many ways that he seems to have observed his friends and his friendships developing. One of the other things that I love to watch for throughout this series, not just in this first movie, although this first movie has a, a higher number of incidents with people trying to bear the ring or having the opportunity to bear the ring. But one of the things I love about Lord of the Rings is watching the different reactions from those exposed to the ring with the opportunity to take the ring or the opportunity to give up the ring. We really learn a lot about the characters from their responses to the one ring. And when we take the ring as an analog into our own life, as we'll talk about in a moment, but as we take that as an analog into our own life, we can also infer from those reactions of the characters a lot of things about our own lives, about our own weaknesses, or about our own strengths. As an abbreviated example of this, it's pretty cool to see Bilbo and his difficulty in giving up the ring and compare it to Frodo's difficulty in giving up the ring and then Sam's ability to give up the ring because if you'll notice from all of these characters and you could go farther back too and look at Isildur and at Gollum and at Sauron himself and if you look at all of these characters who have been exposed to the ring and who have uh, been assigned or or have inherited the duty of being ring bearer for a time. The only two people who are able to give up the ring are Bilbo and Sam. And I think that shows us a lot about the characters that have been written for Bilbo and Sam. They're both rather sidelined as as characters in the overall story because they aren't the ones bearing the ring to Mount Doom and they also aren't the ones who mess it up for everyone else, but they are so important to the overall story. Bilbo's willingness to care for the ring, but then to let it go, to give it up freely before he even knows that it's evil. And then Sam's willingness to give the ring back to Frodo in one of the later movies. Frodo is captured by orcs and before he is taken by the orcs, Sam thinks he's dead and so he takes the ring because he thinks he has to complete this mission now. And when Frodo turns out to be alive, Sam goes and rescues him from the orcs and then he gives the ring back. And you see in... Sam's giving up of the ring, Sam's true strength of character too, because the ring is only getting stronger in its pull on the characters as it gets closer and closer to Sauron and as it cl gets closer to Mount Doom. And Sam is already at the extremity of his 
physical and mental limits. He's been waging this psychological warfare with Gollum for a long time. He's been trying to support Frodo both physically and emotionally and psychologically through this whole journey. Then he has largely been responsible for their physical welfare up until just before this time in the movie. Then he comes in to rescue Frodo, thinks that he's died, he takes the ring, and he can see how much it's hurting Frodo. And so it would be easy for Sam to justify giving in to the ring and allowing it to control him, insisting that it remain in his custody in order to supposedly spare Frodo. But instead, he submits to Frodo, he gives the ring back, he commits to resuming his old role as basically the servant friend in this relationship, and uh, allows Frodo to be the the important one, the noble one, the hero one, who is doing all of the, the carrying and the fighting and the real glory work of the, the journey to Mount Doom. Sam submits to being a side character again. And I think Sam's role is one of the most inspiring in the movies. I don't remember being as inspired by him when I read the books and perceiving his character that way, but I also haven't read the books since watching the movies as many times. And I think the movies really do a great job of portraying Sam's inborn nobility his ability to sacrifice, to be a faithful steward over the things that he has been given responsibility over, and to be a faithful friend to Frodo and then a faithful member of the fellowship who committed to getting the ring to Mount Doom. You could go through a similar process here with Gandalf and Galadriel and Saruman. All of these three are, are powerful, more powerful beings in Middle-earth who have desires towards the ring and react to those desires in unique ways. Gandalf insists on the hobbits being able to shepherd this ring and Galadriel uh, sees the power of the ring, wants that power, but also wants more the purity of, of remaining herself. Uh, Saruman is the one who gives in the most to the lust for the ring, and he seeks the ring thinking that he will try and get the ring in order to be powerful and save Middle-earth while actually becoming one of the uh, most corrupt leaders under Sauron himself. So all three of those offer interesting parallel reactions to the ring. And then we also have the reactions of the men to the ring, where we have the examples of Isildur at the beginning of the movie, and then we have Boromir, we have Aragorn, and later on in uh, the other movies we have Faramir and the steward of Gondor too. All of them are reacting to the rings on a parallel plane that you can compare really easily. And you learn a lot about these characters as you see them reacting to the ring and what they decide to do or say in response to the ring shows us the depth of their commitment to, to goodness, the true purity of their hearts. And this gives us a powerful analog into our lives of how pure our intentions are towards 
uh, towards power or towards something valuable. If we are exposed to something valuable or something uh, that we perceive as important, do we drop everything? Do we betray our friends and family in order to get that thing? Do we stay true to those things? Have we ever really felt a pull or a temptation that would um, remind us of the ring? I would guess that most of us have, but there is likely to be a great variance in our responses to those kinds of temptations. And Lord of the Rings is a safe place for us to examine the different ways that parties can react to the the proposition of gaining this much power, of gaining something this important. And uh, it, that allows us to see more clearly our reactions to things too. Another one of my favorite things to think about as I'm viewing this story is to look at the interconnectedness of the decisions that are happening in Lord of the Rings. I love how organically Tolkien and uh, Peter Jackson too, with his authorial contributions to this story, I love how they both have interwoven the characters and their decisions in such a way that each character has an important part to play. The overall story is essentially dependent on Frodo overcoming his conflict with Sauron. However, the broader story, the more, the more true representation of the story is that this is a, this is a story about Middle-earth fighting off Sauron. And each member of the fellowship and each member of Middle-earth has an important part to play in resisting Sauron. It is not, for example, in the next movie, The Two Towers, it's not King Theoden's job to take the ring to Mount Doom. It is his job to respond to Gondor in their time of need. And his role is essential in overcoming Sauron, even though it is not Frodo's role. In the same vein, Galadriel uh, in this movie has an important role to play in shepherding the company, in restoring their strength, in giving them the power and the resources and the supplies that they need in order to make that last leg of the journey. What would Sam and Frodo have done if they hadn't taken them in at Lothlorien? If they hadn't given them the boats to get them that close to Mordor? If they hadn't had the Lamba spread to get them through most of the time of traveling through Mordor? Galadriel's role and Lothlorien's role in the story of resisting Sauron was also important even though it wasn't the same as Frodo's and wasn't the same as Theoden's and wasn't the same as Gandalf's. And this interconnectedness of all of the characters goes in both directions in powerful ways. In the bad direction, we have this example of Isildur who originally stopped Sauron but allowed evil to endure by taking the ring. And because of his actions, all of Middle-earth now, at the time of Frodo and, and Gandalf and the rest, is on the brink of disaster because of his decision. His single decision, or maybe maybe multiple decisions, if he, if he had to decide to keep the ring over and over again, 
His decision, however, to preserve the ring has caused turmoil for the rest of Middle-earth for generations afterwards. And by the uh, same measure, the elves in creating goodness and in providing a safe haven and providing beauty and respite and wisdom that informs the other nations of Middle-earth has far-reaching consequences towards resisting Sauron. Not all of the elves' actions were actively done with resistance to Sauron in mind, meaning that not all of what the elves are doing is contributing to the war effort, is sending soldiers or providing weapons or doing something of that nature. A lot of what the elves do is just radiate goodness and peace and security and and help to those in need. And because they have been doing that for years in Middle-earth, they have created strong alliances between different peoples and an and a an assurance that if you come to the elves you will find the rest that you need maybe the one exception to that is with the dwarves because they have this this rivalry with the dwarves which Gimli is overcoming during a lot of the movie but overall the elves represent all that is pure all that is good all that is worth preserving about Middle-earth and they have been striving to bring that beauty and goodness to the rest of Middle-earth for centuries and because of their influence Middle-earth weak as it is is still much more able to resist Sauron than if they hadn't been there doing that work you can follow this same line with the actions of the hobbits who think of themselves as a very insulated society and yet these actions of a few small hobbits of frodo of bilbo of sam of Merry and pippin these this small handful of hobbits manages to change the entire fate of middle earth it is because of their memories of goodness and their enjoyment of the simple life, that they are empowered to protect that simplicity by making every sacrifice to destroy the ring. Frodo obviously makes the most sacrifices of the four hobbits. He largely loses his sense of self from this intense battle with the ring, and ultimately he leaves for the Grey Havens because he has nothing left to do in Middle-earth. There's no no rest for him left in Middle-earth. So he leaves for the Grey Havens at the very end of the of all of the movies of all of the books. But each of the hobbits makes significant contributions to overcoming Sauron in the end. Even Pippin, who at the beginning when we are still in the Shire is mostly just a rowdy kind of goofball but he finds a nobility within himself before the end too and provides an important anchor for Gondor in resisting Sauron and the armies of Sauron even at their weakest point. This topic leads into the next thing I like to think about when watching Lord of the Rings which is the massive effect that a small thing can have. A small creature like a hobbit, a small ring, a small action like picking up the ring in Gollum's cave 
or like pitying Gollum enough to spare his life. All of those things, uh, the, the previous one, sparing Gollum's life, was an action performed by Bilbo, as was picking up the ring. And those decisions by Bilbo had far-reaching consequences because it put the One Ring into the hands of those who were willing to destroy it despite its seductive power. And it also ultimately sets the stage for Frodo to be saved. Because at the end of Lord of the Rings, at the end of all the movies, Frodo gets into the heart of Mount Doom and they have sacrificed everything to get there. And the rest of the company, the rest of Middle-earth is also sacrificing everything to draw Sauron's attention away from Mount Doom just long enough that Frodo can get there. They are doing it all on faith that he's still there. They're still hoping that he's alive and that by drawing Sauron's forces out that they can give Frodo the opening he needs to get the rest of the way in. And they do. Frodo and Sam make it. They make it all the way into Mount Doom and they are on the ledge above the lava flow that is running in Mount Doom. And Sam is carrying Frodo to the finish line and when Frodo gets there, he takes the ring off and stops at the last moment and is finally consumed by the power of the ring and decides that he he won't destroy it or he can't destroy it and he's going to claim it for himself instead and it's crushing for Sam who uh, you know has been here the whole time and it's crushing for us as the audience to watch Frodo cave because he's resisted all this time and now at the last moment he's gonna give in and it's at this point that Tolkien gives us one of the greatest twists of the whole film, which is that Gollum shows up again, and Gollum tackles Frodo. He knows that the ring has made Frodo invisible, but he manages to follow Frodo's footsteps in the, the sand and tackles Frodo, and then finds his way to Frodo's finger, bites off the ring and the finger, and then stumbles backwards to fall into Mount Doom and, and destroy the ring. And so Bilbo's act of pity, for which we get a glimpse in the Fellowship of the Ring, Let's back up for a second and talk about this glimpse in the Fellowship of the Ring while Gandalf is talking to Frodo in the Mines of Moria. Frodo looks backwards and sees that this creature Gollum has been following them. And when he discerns this, he is somewhat disturbed by it, somewhat disgusted by it. And he he says flippantly, it's a pity but Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. And Gandalf turns immediately to Frodo and says, pity. It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. And then Tolkien, via Gandalf, gives us one of the great encapsulations of wisdom in The Lord of the Rings when he says, many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? And then he says, uh, my heart tells me that Gollum has some part yet to play for good or evil before this journey, or before this uh, adventure is over. The pity of Bilbo may yet rule the fate of many. This is a beautiful piece of dialogue in and of itself. It's also a beautiful connection point all the way to the end of the film, because this is one of the last times that Frodo talks to Gandalf. So it's one, it's 
probably the last time that he gets Gandalf's direct advice about something. And Gandalf is telling him the pity of Bilbo may yet rule the fate of many. And what Frodo has no concept of yet is that the pity of Bilbo ultimately will save his life. Because pity is also what stays Frodo's hand when he is about to kill Gollum. And when he spares Gollum and allows him to go with them, Gollum leads them into Mordor, and then at the very end, Gollum ultimately saves Frodo by taking the fall for the ring, by, by being the one to be consumed completely by the ring and by Mount Doom, rather than Frodo. And, and this is a, a really cool thread to follow all the way through the, the movie. Frodo learning about pity and, and the way that that goodness, which started with Bilbo, could resonate through many different decisions and ultimately save Frodo's life too. So the theme of pity is also one of those small things that we see as a as a symbol in the overall movie. The ring is one of the small things for evil, but pity is a small thing that turns out to be a very powerful good. Hope, then, is another one of the small things that turns into a big thing as the armies of men risk everything and sacrifice everything in order to fight Sauron in the hope that they can stop him long enough that Frodo will get the ring to Mount Doom and that their families or their civilization or even other communities in Middle-earth may survive. It's that, that small thread of hope that keeps many of the communities in Middle-earth going. So we have small things for good, small things for evil. It's really interesting to, to watch those small things become big things in the, in the oven of this story. We can also see in Lord of the Rings, uh, this is a melodrama, as we already mentioned, where the sides for good and evil are pretty clearly marked. What is different about the Lord of the Rings melodrama versus maybe some of our other modern melodramas, superhero movies and things like that, is that the, the edges of the sides, the edges of good and the edges of evil are a little more blurred than they are in our typical melodrama. In Lord of the Rings, we have these really interesting examples of Boromir and Saruman. And we could even extend it to other characters like Gimli, maybe, or to Gollum. Each of these characters has a side that they profess to be on. And yet they make decisions that align them with the other side. For example, Saruman is uh, professing to align himself with Sauron, but claims to do it in in trying to save Middle-earth. I think that line actually comes from the book, so you would have to read the book in order to get that. That line isn't represented in the movie. But that aspect of his character is still somewhat present in the movie because you see that he is trying to take the ring for himself, not so much to enable Sauron as to take over for himself, which is an interesting part of his character, that he has deceived himself 
to the point that he is making Yurikai, cutting down Fanghorn Forest. And you know, once you start cutting down living trees, you're automatically a bad guy. So watch out. If that ever becomes a temptation in your life, you should just not do it because then you're a bad guy. But he's uh, making all of these bad decisions about attacking Rohan and getting the, the halflings and killing everyone else and, and such. Uh, and yet he thinks of himself as being uh, a sort of hero. Another um, example of this is Gollum, who we don't see as much in this movie, but if you know the Two Towers movie, then you see Gollum, even though he is trying to do something bad, lead the hobbits uh, into bad places, he justifies it to himself by still thinking of himself as as a good character or as an even an honest character in some ways uh, he thinks of leading them to Shelob's lair as fulfilling their request of him and that's what they asked for and so that's where he's taking them and he's obviously being duplicitous but through him we get this powerful example of how self-deception can work and with uh, examples like Gollum and Saruman and Boromir and Denethor later, uh, even Wormtongue and Theoden, all of these characters give us a really interesting look at how we willingly deceive ourselves in order to avoid taking full responsibility for a situation or in order to avoid confronting a part of our own selves that we wouldn't like to acknowledge. And this ties into another big theme of the movie. We're just kind of skipping across all of these fun themes and you can delve into them in, in more detail if you like. But one of the other big themes of Lord of the Rings that, that begins in the Fellowship of the Ring also uh, connects back to this conversation that Gandalf has with Frodo in the Mines of Moria. After they finish talking about Gollum, Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf turns to him again and says, So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And this essential decision about what to do in response to what you have is a really powerful theme that we can... Uh, we can see growing naturally from the context of Tolkien's life where he didn't choose to live through two world wars, but he did choose how to respond to those wars. He did choose how to use his experiences from the war. Some can allow the experiences of war to harden them and limit their ability to uh, associate with others, where it seems that Tolkien really used the war as a lever towards opening himself towards everyone else. He allowed his experiences in the war to really inform his writing of Lord of the Rings, which in turn has enabled hundreds of thousands of people to understand the complexity of what it means to participate in a war. Yes, there's camaraderie, yes, there's thrill, yes, there's there's victory if it happens, uh, but there's also a tremendous amount of grief. And like Sam says in one of the later movies, it, 
it seems impossible that the world could get better after so much bad has happened. And that theme of wisdom is something we don't often get from writers of, of melodrama in our, our current media landscape. This is coming directly from someone who really witnessed the two world wars and participated in the first of those wars. Tolkien understood and communicated his understanding of the importance of stewardship and responsibility to do what you can with what you have in a way that we are not getting from modern writers, modern movie makers, because our modern world has largely not been exposed to the types of things that Tolkien was exposed to. And that makes these stories all the more valuable because they, they offer some uh, mental nutrition that we can't necessarily get if we stick to a diet only of, of modern melodramas. He has written a melodrama that is, that is significantly different from the way that we write melodramas now. And even though on the surface it seems very similar, a lot of these themes about stewardship and about the, the small things that matter are hard-won lessons that are coming from him and his life, which took place in a very different time than the writers who are writing melodramas for our present day. Just a couple more thoughts on uh, this movie before we close. One of the other things that is fun to watch for is the way that power influences a character, the way that power actually reveals a character. This is something that I've noticed in several of our, our modern melodramas that we seem to have preserved this lesson a little better than some of the others that are represented in Lord of the Rings. But in Lord of the Rings, we see a great example of how when a character is exposed to or is given power, what happens to that character? How do they, how do they apparently change? And I would submit that they're not actually changing, that they're just revealing their true character when they get that power. Uh, and some good examples uh, to look for in this theme are Gandalf, because Gandalf gets a large measure of new power after he has defeated the Balrog. Saruman gets more power by aligning himself with Sauron. Wormtongue receives power as he influences Theoden. Denethor uh, lusts for power and gets certain uh, amounts of power over the course of the movie, especially the third installment. And Aragorn gets more power over the course of the movie too. Now each of these characters reacts to the bestowal of power in a unique way, but the two main themes are that for the characters who are truly good, getting more power means that they treat individuals with more respect. They, their power prompts them to come to others with greater empathy than they did before. When the bad characters get more power, they treat others with more indifference than they did before. 
This is another one that provides a really interesting corollary into our lives because if you take an honest look at yourself, you will find that when you have been given power in any degree, one of these two responses will prevail. Either you will become more indifferent or more empathetic towards others. And which one of those you instinctively gravitate towards will tell you about the state of your character, the state of your heart. And thanks to Lord of the Rings, which gives us a very clear separation between this, these reactions to power. If we notice bad reactions to power in our own lives, and it's likely that when you have been exposed to power, you've had some that went in the good direction and some that went in the bad direction. So, you know, it's not a reason to feel horrible if you've had a bad reaction to power. Most of us have both of those reactions depending on the situation. But we should take the example of Lord of the Rings and say that if we have been allowing power to influence us in a negative direction, that means we need a major adjustment of our heart of the the purity of our intentions and that is beyond the scope of this podcast to address but it is really cool to to see how well the the story can reflect that back to us and show us either our need for change or a confirmation that we're going in the right direction this transformative reflective ability with stories Uh, particularly good stories, to uh, help inform us as to the changes that we need to make is one of the central theses of this podcast, that stories are changing the way that we think, and so they can change who we are. And when a story like Lord of the Rings is allowed to stretch out in our minds and show us all of these different things and reflect back to us all of these different patterns in our own behavior, we are then empowered to change in ways that we may not have been able to do without the the reflective power of that story. Lord of the Rings is just happens to be an exceptionally excellent example of many different ways that it can reflect back to us patterns of behavior that are either good or bad. As our last point of discussion about the Fellowship of the Ring, I want to talk about one of the major questions that this story seems to be asking us as viewers. Of course, Every story has many different questions that could be asked. And if you find a good question that this story asked you, please post it for the rest of us because we really learn a lot from from asking questions of our media and then trying to answer them. Even if it's, maybe especially, if it's not the answer that we expected. Uh, In this particular story, the, the question that always strikes me by the end is, what is the ring to us? What are we allowing to be the ring? And are we acting as Isildur or as Aragorn or as Frodo or as Sam or as Boromir? Are we trying to take um, one of the evils that we think looks good on someone else and make it our own? 
There are several different ways to go with this question, but it's a really powerful, introspective journey to watch this movie and then look at your life and say, what is the evil that I am allowing to endure? Is it an addiction? Is it a bad habit? Is it a pattern of thought? Is it something I'm telling myself? Is it uh, someone else who is creating an addictive pattern for me? There, there are a lot of different possible answers, but the ring encapsulates the essence of a fundamental human failing, which is our willingness to overlook something hugely bad in favor of momentary comfort. And the different characters' reactions to the ring and how to deal with it, how to take responsibility for it or refuse to take responsibility for it, can give us a lot of great analogs into our own life. Because if we are struggling with, say, a screen time addiction, and we watch The Lord of the Rings and realize that our behavior towards our phones mirrors Bilbo's behavior towards the ring. All of a sudden, we can't hide from the fact that that's a problem anymore. And the power of the story really comes through when we draw those analogs with our life and allow it to inform us as as to what to do next. Because in this, in this analog, we can see clearly that we're developing an addictive pattern of behavior towards our phones and that the, it might be a momentary comfort, it might be a momentary pleasure, but it's probably distracting us from greater goods that are right in front of us. And it's probably sucking our life away in the same way that it sucked Bilbo's away and caused him and his loved ones future pain because of his difficulties with that. There are as many different ways to take this question as there are characters in the movie. But all great stories will encourage us to ask questions like this and to participate in the creation process as a result of uh, participating in that story. Usually you can't ask questions that are too hard uh, for your given story or else the entire story will just fall apart, which is one of the primary ways you can recognize a good quality story from a bad quality story. If you walk out of the of the movie or walk away from the book and ask questions that are instantly contradicted or prove impossible to answer because of something in the story itself, it's a sign that the story was not very well written, not very thorough, or not very resilient. One of the things that makes Lord of the Rings amazing, though, is that you can really press on it. You can really ask questions of this text. You can ask hard questions of this text and find unexpected answers many times over, even with the same question. So the key to accessing the power of Lord of the Rings, to really falling in love with this original fantasy is not knowing the names of all of the weapons or knowing a lot of the history so much as it is asking questions of the text and then be, being willing to allow 
this story to answer those questions. Sometimes the questions will require external knowledge. For example, one of the recent questions my husband and I had was about Galadriel and her involvement with the ring and why does it look like she's part good and part evil? Like what is her deal with Sauron? Why has she seen the eye, etc.? And that prompted us to to go and look up Tolkien's history about the three elven rings. And when we had looked up that history, that opened up a whole new window for viewing and understanding the characters. We understood Galadriel's character better. We understood Gandalf's character better. We understood Elrond's character better. And all of that enhanced understanding of those characters has allowed us to ask more questions of the text. And this is one of those rare gems of a story that has so much depth to it and Tolkien himself had so much to offer us in terms of scholarly and spiritual knowledge about things that his story holds up really well to the poking and prodding that would make other stories fall apart. So find good questions and then ask them of this story. Ask them while you're watching, ask them after you've watched it, ask them before you've watched it, and allow the story to inform your answer and allow those answers to challenge you and and push you out of your comfort zone too. Uh, like Frodo says at the beginning of the of the first adventure, as he's walking with Sam, he puts his arm around Sam and says, do you remember what Bilbo used to say? It's a dangerous business stepping out your door. You never know where the road might take you off to. And stories are that way too. So I, I will be your Frodo today and put my arm around you and say, it's a dangerous business stepping outside your mental door because you never know where the story is going to take you. I encourage you to share the questions though with me on the forum with the others who are reading there. I have by no means exhausted the list of the of the questions or the themes that you could examine while watching Lord of the Rings or absorbing this story. But this is a good starting place because if you start asking some of these questions, they will inevitably lead to other questions. And if you keep asking questions of these good stories, they will keep reflecting back interesting answers because the, the story is really as deep and as complex as you are. And when you put in the work to analyze a story, it can teach you an enormous amount about yourself. And that ends our breakdown of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien and Peter Jackson and the associated studios with them. Thank you so much for joining us for this. I hope you continue to ponder this story and share any insights you have. Please uh, like and subscribe to the podcast, as we mentioned, and uh, follow us on Instagram or on Facebook. The handle is at S-T-O-R-Y-T-A-L-K-T-I-M-E. That's Story Talk Time. At Story Talk Time on all of those favorite platforms and we will look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for listening. Happy Story Talks and we will see you next time.